Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel chapter 19. Uh, if you don't have a Bible handy, there should be one on the end of the pew uh, nearby. 1 Samuel is the ninth book in the Bible in the Old Testament. It's after Judges and Joshua, and it's uh, a little bit before uh, First and Second Kings. We are continuing our series through uh, this account of really God's kingship, God's lordship over his people and how that is playing out through the various uh, earthly kings and and leaders. Uh, We saw last week in chapter 18 that we focused on this uh, reality of relationships and friendships in particular uh, lessons to be learned from Saul related to uh, and Jonathan and their interaction with David. And we saw how, in particular, Jonathan's ability, even though David uh, was, in fact, a rival to the succession of the throne for him, how Jonathan, because he he seemed to operate uh, pretty well in in his security in the Lord and understood his identity in the Lord, was able to actually embrace and love David, despite uh, David's greatness that might have seemed to be a, a sort of challenge to him. And conversely, we saw with Saul this sad, continued tale of his insecurity, of his, his lack of confidence in, in God that's uh, available to, to us to receive that, to recognize who God is, and, and therefore his propensity to respond with insecurity and envy to David's greatness. And we, we mapped this on last week to our relationships and asked ourselves those questions. How, how does that same struggle with our identity in the Lord and our confidence in him affect our relationships, our ability to pursue uh, deep uh, friendships with those around us? Uh, ultimately, we saw that Christ is described in the New Testament as a friend of sinners. He's called a friend. And so his relationship with us can be viewed through that lens as well of of friendship. And, of course, he loves us right through our sin and right through our brokenness. We don't deserve his friendship, but he extends it to us. And it's a reminder we saw last week of what can empower us to actually have deeper friendship with those around us, even where we disappoint one another, even where we're always because we're sinful, we're bound to let one another down. We can seek those friendships. So last week we saw how that sovereign goodness that God has informs our relationship. This week we want to look at how God's providential love informs our relationship with him and then our relationships with each other. And specifically, we're going to see as we walk through this passage how God uses Jonathan, the son of King Saul, How God uses Michal, who is uh, Saul's daughter, who marries David. How God uses Samuel, the first prophet who anointed Saul as king. And ultimately, how God uses the Holy Spirit just directly to watch over and superintend David's destiny. And I hope, I hope it'll be an opportunity for us to not just contemplate these things that happened in the, the history of redemption, we call it but also the ways that God and his providential love is watching over you and me each and every day as well. And ultimately, how seeing that providential love, recognizing it would enable us to then be uh, be vessels, be vehicles of God's love to others around us, just as we read these folks in this passage, uh, being vessels of God's providential love to David. 
So hopefully you'll get the picture or begin to get it as we read through these verses. We are not going to read uh, chapter uh, 20. It relates to the themes, but kind of overlaps with some of it. So we'll read, but we are going to read chapter 19. I invite you to uh, read along with me silently as I read aloud. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning, stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I'll tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. The Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Jonathan called David. And Jonathan reported to him all these things, gave them all clear, we might say. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. Michal let down David through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of put a pillow of goat's hair on its head and covered it with clothes. And David sent messengers, Saul sent messengers to take David. She said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michal answered Saul and said, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Can't seem to get away. Then Saul sent messengers to take David And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers. They also prophesied and Saul sent messengers again a third time. They also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah. If you can't get it done, you know, others do it. Go do it yourself. Ramah and came to a great well that's in Siku. And he said, where are Samuel? And David, one of them said, behold, they're in Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah and the spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth 
and Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it said, is Saul also among the prophets? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage, which uh, even in its uh, complexities and confusing aspects, declares to us a wonderful message of your providential love. You're watching out, you're superintending over David. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to not only give praise to you for your working throughout the history of redemption, but that we would give praise to you that you promised to watch out over us as well. And Lord, that you show providential love in our lives at every turn. We thank you for it. Help us to see it more and more in these verses, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Lone Survivor, Marcus Luttrell tells the account of a botched mission of American forces during the war in Afghanistan. The uh, book version certainly doesn't contain the same level of uh, uh, violence or language that the movie does, but probably neither one of them are for children and adults, I think, probably would have a hard time even digesting the movie part of it, so duly warned. But the story is powerful, isn't it, if you're familiar with it? Not only for the way that the four U.S. Special Forces soldiers put themselves on the line to protect one another, but particularly also for the providential way that one of the inhabitants of a nearby Afghani village, Mohammed Gulab, a man who sees the Taliban attack on the U.S. soldiers, demonstrates remarkable love for someone he's never even met before and he might easily have viewed as an enemy. If you know the story, if you're familiar with it, Luttrell and his uh, fellow soldiers uh, actually send others to come and rescue them. All of their lives are lost except for the lone survivor, Marcus Luttrell. After becoming that lone survivor and being nearly uh, in in a state of being captured again and escaping at least once, uh, nearly uh, at at the point of death, uh, he, he is found. By this man, Mohammed Gulab, who takes him in. And because of uh, an ancient code that the villages of those Afghani uh, mountains hold to, they protect David, uh, protect uh, Marcus Luttrell, even up to the point of putting their own lives at risk. It's a picture of some of what we see in our passage today. With the people who are surrounding David, showing remarkable love, being vessels of God's providential love and protection to him, uh, even as God is watching over him through this. They recognize who David is and some of his endearing qualities, but they also see that he's this appointed one by God. And they also recognize Saul's failings as well. So they're motivated to watch over him, and to literally put themselves on the line. But there's much at risk, isn't there? Spears are flying around, right? Death threats being made. Assassination orders being dispersed. 
in all of this, we see ultimately a picture of how God watches over us in the most perfect way through uh, his redeemer, his rescuer, not being protected by us, but being put on the line, being offered up on the cross for crucifixion for you and for me to enjoy salvation, that we enjoy God's providential love through the sacrifice of his son. So as we walk through these verses, and if you want to follow along in the sermon notes section, you can in the back of your worship guide. I know you're familiar with that. The main idea here, I think, is this, that since God displays his his beautiful, his marvelous providential love, we can rest in that care. And you and I can actually be vessels, too, of that kindness to others around us. Oh, it's easy, isn't it, to... uh, to doubt God's providential love, right? E- even us uh, here in this time, in this place that we live in the world that enjoy so many blessings of security and health and much protection and much, much material benefit and blessing, we struggle, don't we? To really believe that God loves us deeply and watches over us as He says He does. And so it's not surprising, I guess, that all of us are so prone to look for other sources of security, for other sources of comfort than the love of God. We literally are people who are, to quote those country songs, looking for love in all the wrong places, aren't we? We really are because we struggle to fully believe God's love for us. And and because we're not often struggling to believe that God's loving and watching over us, and we're, we're often not empowered to be vessels of love to others around us, to be used of the Lord and His plans for others who are around us. We're, we're told in our time to, uh, to, to, to do this. We're told to make our own luck. Right? Make your own luck. Make your own way in life. The Scriptures say... God is watching over us. God's showing his love to us. He's going before us in his plan and purpose. And as we said, we already mentioned, we see that this is ultimately fulfilled in God taking the work of Christ and and showing us the full extent of his love, that he'd love us to that degree to offer up his own son. And yet again, we've seen the magnitude of it. We've seen more of it than even David was able to see. He only saw a prophecy, a, a foreshadowing of it. We've seen the fulfillment. We look back upon it, but it's so quickly fades from our vision, doesn't it? Scriptures speak of it uh, this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says this, it says, God made him, talking about Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're elevated through his sacrifice and God's providential love being shown to us in that way. Well, look with me how this is displayed in this passage. It is really compelling if you if you can dive with me just a bit. I know there's a few confusing things in here, but I think it'll encourage each one of us to see what God's doing in our lives today. Look at Jonathan at first there in verses one through seven. You see in verse one, he's effectively disobeying his his own father and the king right off the bat. He's putting himself on the line in that way. Verse two, he's become essentially a double agent. He's telling David what his father is telling him. 
He speaks well of David, so he doesn't even really hide it with his father, you know. He says, Dad, look, you, you're, going, you're going off the deep end here. This guy actually is doing you good. Why not love him? Why not embrace him? He's willing to do that. He challenges his father in that way. In verse 4, we read, and then we won't turn, as I said, to chapter 20. But we see in chapter 20, this, this gets even dicier. You know, we can already sense it. I mean, think about it. The dad is, is it wouldn't be the first time in history that a, a father who is a king got upset with his son who was potentially a king and got rid of him. Right. It's not like that's never happened before, never been heard of. And in chapter 20, we read that spears are then flying towards Jonathan verses 30 through 33 there. Jonathan puts himself on the line. And so we see a fuller picture. It's, it's not just this uh, image of friendship and what we can learn from uh, the chapter 18 that we saw last week. Now we see that Jonathan, he's this, he's this vessel, he's this vehicle of God showing his providential love, his sovereign love over David. Look at verses 11 through uh, 17 then. And David's uh, wife, uh, Michal, this is his uh, first uh, wife, and it, it tells us there, uh, as we saw uh, last week at the end of chapter 18, I don't think we got to spend much time on this, but it's interesting how even God put David in the place to have her as his wife. You remember uh, Saul's strategy was to kind of lure David, a little bait and switch, you would say, to, to say, hey, would you like to marry this, this gal? Well, then I need this bride price. Remember that he sent him out to, to kill a hundred Philistines, uh, sort of an unusual uh, bride price. And, and David, uh, in, in playing, a, playing the game of poker skillfully with Saul, said, I'll, I'll see your hundred Philistines and I'll raise you another hundred and killed actually two hundred of them. Uh, we won't discuss the odd nature of the proof that was requested by, uh, by King Saul of this bride price. But let's just say this. David had his work cut out for him, we could say. We see that God put the two of them together in his providential purposes. Okay, so that's the whole reason she's there. God orchestrated that part of it. We certainly would uh, recognize here as well with Michal that she finds herself in a company with Hannah earlier in the book of First Samuel. Folks that kind of say, well, sometimes, you know, where are the women? Tell me a little bit more about the women in Scripture. Well, they're, they're, they're in all sorts of places. Hannah's uh, praying early on in First Samuel for Samuel to even come into existence. And she's uh, involved in that through faith. We see later on just a couple of chapters. We'll see Abigail and how she plays a crucial role. And they come in this line of folks going back to Sarah and uh, Deborah and, and Rahab, who was a prostitute, and Ruth, who was a, sort of abandoned in a foreign land and from the foreign people and welcomed in. We see this picture that, indeed, the, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, we could say. We see these women being used significantly, and here's one example of that. I think you get the, the picture. It's not too complicated. She put a little dummy in the bed to make. I guess goat's hair was kind of a thing, a pillow of goat's hair. I don't know, ladies, decor, how that works, but that must have been comfortable, I guess. But, uh, you know, th- this was a, 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 a charade she put on to make sure that her husband could escape. David could escape. Again, she's going against her own father to do this. God's showing his love for that. I don't know that it necessarily says so much about Saul, although I think, you know, Jonathan and Michal must have recognized the type of character he was. It tells us God loved David that much to have people that should have been loyal to their own father and to the king instead show loving kindness to him. Reminds me of the uh, story of uh, Britain's Queen Victoria. 
I don't know how many of you all have uh, watched the, the movie version, uh, Young Victoria, that's been out in the recent years. Guys, if you want a good, you know, romantic kind of, be, you know, your wife enjoy the movie and one that you can, let me just tell you, you can tolerate it. It's okay. It's not as bad as sense and sensibility or pride and prejudice. It's, you know, contained within two hours time, at least. It's a good movie to uh, to watch and fairly accurate historically. And you'll, if you remember the story from history or know from history or have seen the movie, you're familiar with Queen Victoria that she was uh, she was born in a situation of what they call regency. She was under some director because she was too young and uh, the king had died, but she was slotted to take over. Well, everybody and their mother literally wanted to try to arrange for various uh, princes and so forth of Europe to have a marriage to her, but purely for the alliance, purely for the beneficial uh, nature of that for, for their kingdoms. And, and indeed, uh, uh, Prince Albert comes along, the prince, I guess it was of Belgium, who comes along, and initially that's what he's deployed to do, right? To kind of figure her out and see if they can work out a marriage and it'll be beneficial for his home country. The two, though... Uh, genuinely fall in love. And the, the stories, I won't, won't tell you all of it. Unfortunately, I'll reveal to you some of the, the ending of it. If you don't know your history, that, that, that Albert actually, in a, in a moment when Victoria had made some difficult decisions, she was now, they were now married and she had become the, the queen and had made some difficult decisions. There were people that were upset by them and an assassin attempts to kill her as she's riding by on a, uh, in a carriage one day. Albert is riding next to her and, and, and I believe this is historical fact. They had just had a huge argument. They had just had a, a whole lot of conflict between the two of them. But he dives in front of her and shields her from this assassin, protects her. The picture's reversed in our passage today with uh, Michal protecting David. It's interesting, even a little bit more of that story about Queen Victoria. Uh, Prince Albert only lived to age 42. He died of typhoid at that point. They had wonderful 20 years of marriage. They had nine children in that time. Those uh, nine children, let me tell you the list of the, the royal families that those children are now a part of up to today. Britain, Spain, Sweden, Norway, Yugoslavia, Russia, Greece, Romania, and Germany. Their descendants are all in those places. So God used those 20 years and then I thought this was a beautiful picture and, and is true from history as well. That Victoria... She never married again, and she had his clothes laid out on the bed every morning until she died at age 81. What a picture of their, their loving relationship with one another. And, and David's just known Michal for a little while. They've just been married for a short time, but already she's putting herself on the line for him. And a beautiful picture of God showing his loving kindness to David. We see in verses 18 and 19 that uh, Samuel is there too. He's sort of the, I look at him, it's kind of the, the, uh, the Yoda, the, the Ben Kenobi off in the desert somewhere. That uh, David's like, okay, I'm sure my wife has helped me out. My best buddy Jonathan has helped me out. I'm off in the wilderness. Where, where do I go? Where do I go for some protection? And so he goes to Samuel. And, and here's what's amazing about verses 20 through 24. I'm not going to pretend that I can explain to you this sort of movement of the spirit and why people are prophesying or how that exactly relates to it or why Saul takes off his clothes for that purpose. I don't get all that. Here's what I do get. The human options have been exhausted. Jonathan, Michal, Samuel, they've tracked him down. He's found them. He knows where he is and he sent messengers and those messengers and those messengers and the Holy Spirit just comes in and intervenes for God's purposes it's a powerful reminder, really, of God's 
of providence, his providential care. And I, I want us to think about this a little bit today and then we'll draw some application points for us. Uh, hopefully we're already thinking about the ways that God has superintended over our lives. The people and the events and the issues that have happened in our life where God has watched over us. It hadn't been a perfect run for any one of us. We have situations where we probably wondered, where is God? But for every one of those situations, how many tens of twenties of hundreds do we have where we recognize God's protection? And so let's talk for just a minute about this whole idea of providence. And again, there's some notes in your sermon uh, notes section that might be helpful for you. One little book by this guy named Louis, uh, Louis Burkhoff. This is the short one. We had the big one in seminary. We used to call it the big blue sleeping pill because that bad boy would shut you down pretty good if you read through it. But I won't I won't put you all to snooze just a little bit of it. Burkhoff says this. He says, first of all, providence is listen to this. That work of God in which he preserves all his creatures is active in all that happens in the world and directs all things to their appointed end. It's interesting that we don't use the word providence very much. Go back and read yourself a couple of Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, uh, messages and so forth. You'll see that hand of providence spoken of often in, in past generations and whatever they in the details of where their belief in God, they. They had this idea that God was superintending all things. And then it's interesting because Burkhoff goes on to point out, he says, this includes God's preservation of us. Colossians 1.17 is one passage. It, it says there that, in fact, Jesus Christ, before all time, is involved in holding all things together. In him, all things cohere. Right? In him, everything in our lives and everything in the world holds together. He's the glue that binds it together. The planets, the stars, this earth and the way things function and the plant life and how it exists and how we have this thin bit of air that we breathe in this unique place as far as we know in all the universe and how our bodies and our different organs are inside of us and held together and each cell is cohered through this intricate system. If you've ever studied that, all those things God's preserving you and me through that. He not only preserves us, but he works through the things that are happening in this world. This is a little different, different, more difficult for us to understand. But let me read what Burkhoff says about this. He calls it concurrence. And he says it implies that there are real secondary causes, right? People like Jonathan, people like Michal, people like Samuel, who are doing something to exhibit and carry out God's will, just like people around us are doing that in our lives and events are playing out. But he says, such as the powers of nature and the will of man and asserts that they do not work independently of God. God works in every act of his creatures, not only in their good, but also in their evil acts. He stimulates them to action, accompanies their action at every moment. He makes the actions effective. However, we should never think of God and man as equal causes. The former is the primary, the latter only the secondary cause. Neither should we conceive of them both as working together like a team of horses. The same deed is in its entirely both a deed of God and a deed of man. Moreover, we should guard against the idea that this cooperation makes God responsible for man's sinful deeds. So here's the picture. 
God's providentially watching over all things. It tells us here as well that he governs all things. Look at Psalm 3 with me and let's get a picture for this and then we'll draw a couple application points. Psalm 3 is just a a little bit more towards the middle of your Bible. And it's actually uh, correlates to an event later in the life of David, but certainly relates to the situation he's in right now with his life on the line and God nevertheless showing his providential love. And maybe it would be an encouraging passage for us, something we can kind of memorize or commit to to our our heart and soul. Some of the ideas here that, that might be an encouragement to us in the different ups and downs and struggles that we face in our lives. Places where we sense the particular need of God's providential love. Psalm 3. David says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. All right, you and I might not feel like we've got a particular, we don't have a king chasing us down and trying to kill us necessarily. But we've got our own sin that seems to want to own us. We've got the world and it's sometimes damaging influence on us. And we've got the evil one that's out there and loves to steal, kill and destroy. So we shouldn't pretend like we don't have some enemies around us either. We do. And they want to convince us to believe that there's no salvation for us in God. But listen to what David was able to profess. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I love that picture. That's just one of my favorite pictures from Scripture. Whenever I'm feeling run down or feeling like the things of the world are not going the way I want to or I'm struggling or whatever, this idea that the Lord kind of reaches down, takes that chin and just lifts it up. Say, come and look at my face. Look at the beauty of what I'm doing in your life. Look at the beauty of my love. I'm a shield. I'm around you. I'm your glory. Goes on and says, uh, I lay down and slept. How many of us struggle to get a good night's rest of sleep? And it's not because something's probably physically wrong with us in many cases. We just struggle. We struggle to believe God's really watching over for us. David, in the midst of all of this, he knows God's providential love so he can lay down and sleep and rest in that love. I woke again, he says, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the tree. Cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. The last verse is beautiful as well. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. What a picture for us. Think about it with me today in this way. How many times throughout your life? Just just scroll back with me through your younger years, your youth. And on through your college years and depending on where we are, some of us beyond that in our early married years and on into other periods of our life and the flights we've taken and the roads we've driven down and the sicknesses that we've incurred and the situations we faced and how God has been in the midst of each one of those things for you and for me, displaying his love, watching over us perfectly. It ought to. Warm our hearts to worship and celebrate him. And as we conclude, it ought to remind us to be vessels of that love for others. Right. That's what the scriptures say. You know, the main message of this passage has got to be what God does for us. 
But as we just read a minute ago, God delights to work through us, too. Like these folks in this passage. God invites us to be a vessel. And when we're filled with God's love, then we're equipped. Like John thirteen thirty four says, as I have loved you, so love one another. Out of that love that we experience in Christ, we can love one another. Here's the amazing thing. Uh, in chapter 20, the second chapter that we're kind of looking at this week, but not having time to look at in detail. Jonathan and uh, David, they kind of the tables are turned a little bit. And uh, Jonathan seeks a commitment, a covenant from David. Right. We saw earlier as David's sort of getting his start and he's killed Goliath and he's just coming into the royal family. Then Jonathan is in the position of power, we might say, and is graciously uh, makes a covenant with David. We saw that in 18. Well, in verse 20, Jonathan says, OK, I realize this isn't just me committing to you, but my life is on the line. I may not live. And in fact, my father's whole household may not survive because of the just judgment on him. And so, David, would you make a covenant with me? And do you remember what happened? We're going to see it, I'm sure, later in First uh, and Second Samuel. There was a, a child. There was, there was only one that survived from that line of, of Saul. A little, little one, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was dropped when he was young by the mother who, or the caregiver that was watching over him at some of the news that had happened. She was startled by the news that had happened to Saul's family. And Mephibosheth was dropped in the midst of that. But he survived. He was kind of skirted away and he just survived the loss of the rest of Saul's family. And I just thought about it, about what a picture of you and me. What a picture of our helplessness. We're paralyzed spiritually. And we would love to be able to make great claims of being able to love God and love others uh, perfectly to fulfill some of these uh, uh, confession questions we've been looking at in the past few weeks in worship service. But, But we don't. We don't do that perfectly. And just like Jonathan, the ultimate thing for Jonathan wasn't the covenant that he could make with David, God's anointed one. It's not so for us either. What's the benefit and the blessing to us is the covenant that the anointed one, Jesus Christ, makes with you and me. Just as David said, and later on, when he was king, said, where is that one Mephibosheth? Bring him to me that I could love him, that I could extend some of that providential love. That I've been extended so dearly from Jonathan. Let me honor that covenant. So too, you and I are part of that covenant pathway that God delights to watch over us with his love. Though we're paralyzed and needy and in need of rescue. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to apprehend how wide and how high and how deep. Is your love for us. And Lord, as we, in a sense, are riding on the shoulder of David and getting a glimpse of your love extended to him in this one little encapsulated situation in, in the Old Testament, we know, Lord, that that's just one, one chapter, one verse, really, in the whole story of your redeeming love for your people. And that we sit in that line. Father, I pray that you would help us to see and Everything that we do, every day we have a sense constantly that you are watching over us, that it's your love that sustains us, protects us, defends us, encourages us, that lifts our head. 
And Lord, I pray that you'd empower us out of that to be people who are then freed up, liberated, that we can love others well around us, be a source of your love to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.